This episode is brought to you by Suffix Days of Giving. Hi everyone, it's Grace and Lauren here back with another amazing Bean Town Bites episode starring Saladiki. Right off from Government Center is a small Greek restaurant with amazing dishes authentic to Greek culture. We had the amazing opportunity of interviewing the CEO of Saloniki, Eric, who is a Suffolk graduate. He graduated both undergrad and grad. He got his MBA at Suffolk University and his MS in Finance at Northeastern University. He has always had a passion for food and culture and wanted to share it with the world. We had the opportunity to interview him on his journey to today and the tips he has for Suffolk students. We also had an amazing opportunity to try some of the popular dishes at Saloniki. We first tried the griddled spinach kopita pita, which was super crunchy and had a great fresh flavor of the cheese and spinach. It was around $8. We also tried their popular crispy feta puffs with hot honey. This was by far my favorite dish as the hot honey was something different and made the side dish better than traditional french fries or chips. It was also $8 and came with 10 puffs. We also tried their traditional Greek iced tea for $3.99, which was refreshing, but was not on the sweet side. On the hot day, we went and it matched well. We also ordered a sandwich with their chicken Slovaki pita, which had chicken, french fries, vegetables, and cheese. This was delicious as well, and at a great price point of $11.59. Their refreshing tzatziki and special sauce made this gyro unlike any other place in the Boston area. Eric recommended for dessert we try their Greek yogurt. They had many different kinds, so we decided to get the Saloniki Greek yogurt with Nutella and baklava crumbles. It was super delicious and refreshing because it was a very hot day, and the baklava crumbs added to the texture of dessert, and I would highly recommend it. It was cold and refreshing. Just like as a Suffolk grad, like what led you to going into um, not Suffolk directly, but indirectly. Um, I came to the States when I was nine, and typical immigrant family, my dad opened a sort of diner, so I was washing dishes, and that's how I got sort of my foot in the door in hospitality. And uh, when I came to Suffolk as a freshman, I lived at the dorms, and uh, typical city life, you know, I had to sort of pay my way through undergrad, and I ended up actually working at a nightclub right down the street. I was a door guy for the first year, and then from there on in, I was a bartender. So um, Suffolk didn't sort of kind of curate my experience as a restaurateur, but because it was in the city, because I was living in the dorms, and there, there back then, this is 20, 30 years ago, in 1994, <laughs> geez, um, there was no sort of real campus life. And actually on West Street, uh, West and Tremont was the first dorms that had opened up and I'd lived there. And um, so I needed to um, have an income. And I was just working at the nightclub, you know, as a bouncer first and then as a bartender. And so I did that all through my college career, and it was a lot of fun. And I played soccer at Suffolk, you know, again, which was really an interesting experience because, again, we don't have fields, so we always had to sort of um, commute to practice and to play games. And um, I got my MBA right after I did my undergraduate. And then I started working my first corporate career. But I couldn't give up bartending. And it wasn't from a financial standpoint, it was really social. So all the friends that I had made during college as I was bartending, um, I couldn't like give it up. So I just sort of kind of snowballed it into, bartended into my first career, uh, my first corporate finance career. And then I opened up my first place when I was 26. I was working at my first job. Uh, doing corporate finance and I was getting my second master's this one was at Northeastern I got my master's science in finance and working the club at night so it wasn't so much directly that led me into the sort of entrepreneurial path but indirectly because it was such an urban school and it was habit for us to either commute and to work in the city and just really be involved because there was no 
frat or sorority parties or whatever these big campuses they do. Yeah. It was for us, it was like, okay, you go to school and then you work. And so it created that habit really early on. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that too because I commute from Rhode Island currently. So wow. I used to live on campus mm -hmm. and I felt like so much more involved and like I didn't have a job. So like now, I have classes to go to, I go home and then I work. So it's similar too, but yeah. I do like find passions like within my work, kind of like what you were saying, mm -hmm. because um, I'm like doing marketing stuff and I'm doing more creative stuff because I like to play violin and mm -hmm. I'm part of the jazz band. So I'm all mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, connected in that sort awesome. of way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does that. I mean, again, I'm so biased with Suffolk because I went here, it's my home model. But, um, yeah, I feel like you get intertwined with real, uh, I don't want to say real culture, but real city, uh, like from day one, because your campus is next to offices, it's next to other schools, it's next to government buildings, so you're, it's such an immersive experience all the way around, it's never just like an isolation in a campus in the middle of nowhere, and um, so I, I just feel like I'm always, always involved. And also from a city standpoint, again, because I've been in the city now for so long, I feel like I know every neighborhood, the traffic count. Um, you know, I'm on my bike most of the days, but like where to go, what what shortcut to get from point A to point B. Uh, I know the seasons. And actually what I really appreciate that Boston doesn't necessarily have an academic cycle anymore. Again, back 30 years ago, the city would empty out when kids were on vacation. You know, all the international kids that were coming in. And uh, Boston has matured into a really great, sustainable city year, year round. Besides the snow, but anyway, besides that, it's really great. Yeah. And I feel regardless of what students do after college, but if the ones that end up staying in the city for professional reasons or other academic reasons, um, it's a great, like, you, you feel like you're already part of the city. Even just being a freshman, you feel like I'm in the city, like I am with grown-ups or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. So I, I always love that. I feel like, same with race here it's like I came from a small town and I've never been in a city before like I didn't even go to mm. Providence either so yeah. like coming here like at least my freshman year was on Zoom so I had to kind of you know it was harder to yeah. meet people and then I met people that I met on Zoom in person and that was difficult but then like once I finally got here and like lived on campus it was so much of like a culture shift where I was like walking around the city but then like also I was like never had like homeless people around either so like seeing yeah. that was also crazy too so yep. like figuring out different places to eat like I would always ask my friends like places that they've been to before since they like lived nearby like the members of Quincy, Melrose, mm -hmm. all of that so it's really interesting to see like how changing from like one area to another really like changes your personality I feel like I've really like mm -hmm. grown to be more involved and more like kind of mature instead of like I felt like if I was yeah. in a closed environment I would still kind of be on that high school mindset so absolutely and again I just you know going back to your first question to me it's like that's all of those experiences is what made me an entrepreneur. And particularly back in my days, there was no entrepreneurial track or class. It was just sort of like, it was like finance, accounting, marketing, that's it, right? And so, but because I was in that environment where I'm in the city, it was really easy to acclimate, acclimate and think about how I wanted to live in the city and how I could open a business in the city and how I could be really involved. So, again, I think um, for me, Suffolk was really an integral part in who I am today, particularly in the city. Like, people know who I am in the city, not because I have restaurants. It's because I have restaurants. I live here. I work here. I went to school here. And just all the relationships that I've built. Yeah. So do you want to talk more about, like, your restaurants that you made and, like, the process of doing that and how you became comfortable like becoming like an entrepreneur because I know for me like I can never picture myself being an entrepreneur for some reason like Why? I think it's just because I have different ideas but I think I want to implement them into other people's businesses I don't think I can like 
come up with like my own in sure. a sort of way. Yeah. I like like problem solving more than figuring out my own. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm like. Yeah. I don't know. Um. So specifically, the question was how I got my businesses started. Yeah. So I opened up the nightclub uh, in 2004, uh, and it's because, a couple of reasons, right? So my undergraduate was in finance, so heavy in business. Um, I got my MBA, obviously all business, and I finished my MBA just as I turned 21, so I was, I was young, because of, not because I was smart, but because I came over when I immigrated from Greece, they put me in the wrong grade. I was supposed to go in the fifth grade, they put me in the sixth grade. So, uh, yeah, people think, I was like, no, I wasn't that smart. I still think Yeah. So, um, as an immigrant, you know, and again, it, this happens today, you know, certainly in America, and I just flew in from Beirut last night. This I don't, Last night, I came in from Beirut. I was literally there for two days just to go eat. And you just you go back to a world that's 50 years back. Literally, it's 50 years back. I was really kind of shocked. And I've been all over the world. But for some reason, Beirut really left an impression on me. Granted, I was there for 72 hours. But it really kind of brought home, again, this sort of thing about what immigrants are. And here in America, and it depends on what part of America, immigrant means something very different. If you're in the Northeast, that probably means maybe from Europe. If you're from the southeast, it probably means from Cuba. If you're in the southwest, it probably means from your, you know, Mexico Central or uh, Latin or South America. Um, and here, luckily enough, we're very fortunate that we can treat uh, immigrants as neighbors. Um, and what, you know, for the most part. Um, and the entry place for a lot of them to start is really in restaurants, right? Because that's a skill set that they know directly or indirectly is food, right? Because we all have to eat. So they may remember their grandmother's or their mother's recipe or something along those lines. It's like, okay, I come into this new country. What can I offer this country? I don't have a skill set. Or maybe they do, but for the most part, they don't necessarily. So they sort of jump into the restaurant business because of either something that they've known from family or from culture, which is always food. Um, and... Um, and it's a low skill, entry-level job. Anyone can go watch dishes. I can teach anybody how to watch dishes. So, um, you know, again, coming from you know where I was last night, um, even that holds true all around the world. So I started, um, um, you know, with washing dishes. And so when I had my opportunity in 2004, 26 to open up my first place, it's because academically, okay, I know business. Uh, I bartended for eight years through undergrad and through grad school. I was like, all right, I, I, I just sort of just put the two and two together. And I had this passion, and the passion probably came from watching my dad coming to America. I was like, all right, I gotta go work, I start your own business. This is how you support a family. And so that was sort of somewhere in my subconscious. So I opened it up, uh, and it was really the skill set of me. Uh, from school academically okay this, I know accounting I know marketing I know uh, organizational behaviors and stuff like that and I know bartending here let me just sort of marry those two together the other big thing for me also being an entrepreneur and I talk a lot about this is minimizing the, the risk gap right so everyone's sort of like walking in life and doing whatever you can always go work for someone which is great because there's not a lot of risk. Yes, of course you might get laid off, but if you do a decent job, you can always find work, particularly again in, in this country. And some people may want to live their life, not may, they do want to live their life with lower risk. I want to go to work, I want to get a nine to five, if that even exists anymore post COVID, but I want to have a nine to five, but I want to know on Friday I get my paycheck. Because what's important to me is to go skiing with my friends on the weekend, or to go out to dinner, or to play in my garden. When you're not, when you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, all of that goes out the window, right? So you're playing with a whole other sort of expectations for what your life is. Um, so as I opened up my first business, uh, it was great. And so what I ended up doing, so sorry, about bridging that risk gap, is I was still working my corporate job as I opened up the nightclub, because again, as an entrepreneur, you don't know. And still to this day, I don't know when I'm going to get a paycheck. I don't know. Are we busy? Okay. If we're not busy, oh, I'm gonna get a paycheck. So like, that's part of the course. 
So what I tell entrepreneurs is, particularly on your first venture, you want to minimize that risk gap. And so for me it was, I know income is going to be very, very tight in restaurants. I have a really good corporate job. Okay, let me just, you know, keep my corporate job until I can realize that I don't need my corporate job. I can sustain myself with restaurants. And that was really my first place, right? It was the nightclub. And um, after about a year, I left my corporate job and I was like, all right, this is great. But then I had another epiphany, or epiphany, or I should say a real challenge, was um, I was young, so at this point I'm 27, but I was coming home at 4 o'clock in the morning because bars close at 2, by the time you get everybody all done and get into the it's 4 o'clock. I was like, oh my God, this is an unsustainable life. For some people it's good, you know, they like to be night owls, and I still am a night owl, but not to that point. So I was like, all right, I need to kind of transition my skill set into hospitality, and then I, I opened up a diner. And again, I opened up the diner while I still had the nightclub, because at first I was like, all right, I'm going to open up 100 nightclubs. But after my first one, I was like, I don't want to any more 4 a.m. So I opened up a diner, which was, again, kind of mitigating my risk exposure. Um, so did that. Uh, that was around 2007. My nightclub, actually, by the way, I had it 15 years from 04 to 2019. Uh, Emerson was my landlord, and so after the 15-year lease, our lease ended, and they took the space back and kept it for some sort of like student services, something like that. But anyway, but it's like a block away. It's like a big part of my life. Is you know just uh, yeah. So it's, so when I ride my bike, or when my friends are in town, I'm like, oh, this is where I got started. Anyway. Um, so in 2011, um, again, I started kind of getting really into the food side. I still to this day can't boil water. Ask me to go in the kitchen here and boil. I was, I wouldn't even know, right? Theoretically. Um, so again, mitigating risk as I partnered with arguably one of the best chefs in the Northeast. Um, you know, she is uh, nationally um, uh, awarded and recognized. Her name is uh, Jody Adams. Um, she's uh, about a generation older than I, I am, but we partnered together about 15 years ago. And uh, because again, I'm the business guy, I'm the entrepreneur, and she's the artist. So we sort of both need each other to function. Um, and she had one restaurant and she had it for 22 years, but it was only one because as a chef, owner like you got to be in there every single day so she didn't really know how to scale because that's really my mindset or my skill set she knows how to cook i don't know how to cook i know business she doesn't know about business and again i say that very loosely she of course she knows about business um and so we opened trade which is right down the street uh corner of atlantic and congress uh we opened that in 2011 became wildly successful uh, in 2016, we opened three more restaurants in a year. So we opened the, our first Saloniki in Fenway, our second one at MIT, and then we opened another full-service restaurant called Porto, which is right next to Saks in Back Bay. Um, and so that was our that was four restaurants, one, two, three, four. We opened Harvard in 2018, our Harvard Saloniki, so that's five restaurants. And then we opened our um, airport. Our, we have a trade at the airport, so that's number six. Um, and then I bought a restaurant in the South Shore uh, that's been around forever. I bought that three months before the pandemic, so I think that's like number seven. And then we opened these two Saloniki, Saloniki One Beacon and Saloniki Newbury, uh, about four months ago. So that's number nine. And then we have three more restaurants opening up in the next six months. What month are we in now? This is April. In the next six to ten months, we have three more restaurants. Yeah. What goes into like, like choosing like how you're going to open a restaurant or like when you're going to open it and like the location and like all of that sort of stuff it's a combination like everything has to be aligned um so from my standpoint there the deal there needs to be a really good deal right so the deal is where's the location what's the rent like what is the landlord looking to contribute um, how big is the space, the neighborhood, what's around the neighborhood, are we interested and excited? So that's sort of the external factors and the internal factors are just as important. Who's going to lead this restaurant? What is the cuisine? What is the concept? Um, and the, the first part for us is really who that artist is. So. You know, do we have a chef and a general manager who can blow this thing out of the water and just be amazing? So there's both external and internal factors. 
And then the third part is also the investment side of it. Um, is there an appetite? You know, what's the current economy like? Is there an appetite for investment out there from external investors? What's our current cash flow? Do, are we going to invest in our own restaurants? Are we going to have bank financing? Are we going to have investors coming on it, coming in on it? So it's those three, but they don't come in a very methodical process. It's very abstract, and it's probably more artistic than anything. So the next restaurant that we're opening, um, it's at the Raffles Hotel, which is uh, in Back Bay. And I can't really talk about it actually yet, but anyway, it's in Back Bay. It's a big restaurant. And so the deal came to me, and then I just have to like ruminate on that deal. I was like, oh, you know what? The financials make sense. Okay, I, can, I think I can do this. All right, what do I want to do? Like, what food is really interesting? And then I'll, you know, jump on a plane, either, either locally or nationally or internationally. Jump on a plane and just see, like, what's going on? What are people, like, really interested in, in trying out? And then do I like something that it makes sense? And then bringing my partner on board and saying, this is what I'm thinking you're in. What do you like? Yeah. And we're always in tandem, kind of interestingly enough. She sort of uh, takes my lead on development, and I take her lead, obviously, on culinary. Um, and that's kind of how the process begins. But if we are, the most critical factor in restaurants is the staff. So we live in a world where, you know, obviously AI is the new hot thing, right? Everyone's talking about ChatGPT and all the likes of AI. This business, the last mile, is so tough to execute with any sort of robotics and any sort of technology. Um, I don't, the pandemic was really interesting because as restaurants were closed, people can and were getting food delivered to their house. Uber, DoorDash, a local pizza shop, whatever it was. And I just remember on social media, everybody was like, I can't wait to restaurants open. I'm gonna tip my bartender extra, blah, 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 blah. And then as soon as the pandemic started to kind of lighten up, you saw this, like, you know, people just want to get jammed in there and they miss the social interaction, um, which in my eyes was like, okay, wow, people really want human interaction. But I, I got to tell you, side note, the first couple of months of the pandemic, I was 100% convinced that people will never be this close. Never. I was like, we're going to be across glass, across stadiums. No one's going to talk to each other. Everyone's going to be digital. And I'm so happy that this is back to normal. So, um, so where I'm going with this is the biggest challenge for us is staff. So I have a great idea. Killer. I went to X yesterday and I saw this. I'll put all the pieces on paper for you. This is the cuisine that I want. This is whatever. The plates is the decor. Who's going to execute it? And what's tough about our business is that you can't work from home. You got to be here. Um, again, let me just take you on another ride for like 30 seconds. So I was in um, Lebanon yesterday, which is a country that, again, as, as I mentioned, 50 years back. Um, I was even actually surprised at the condition. And my buddy, I was like, just bring me to the best food. Like, the whole time we're there, just bring me to the best And it's a small country. It's like, population is half the size of Manhattan. Uh, what's up? Yeah, very small. Um, and geographically, probably, it's small than Massachusetts, right? But vertically. I was like, just bring me the best food. Bring me, I would want to see. So we go to this one place where they make shawarmas, which is very typical to our type of food. It's sandwiches, you know, with grilled meat. The place is hopping, hopping. And I see there's six guys. I don't know why there weren't females. Six guys in an open kitchen. Sweat. Cutting this meat. You know, you got the hot flames coming out. Like, they're just sweating. They're just cutting this meat all day, all day, all day. I know. I've been there. I've been there. I know what that physicalness is like. And I told my buddy, I was like, see how hard they're working? Look at across the street. There was a shoe store across the street. And there was one salesperson in the shoe store. And they were sitting behind a desk. And sort of the... Um, juxtaposition of this type of work and one person isn't making more than the other the shoe store person is probably making the same wage as the person who's working at a food shop so the biggest challenge for us is in this new world that we have how do we get people excited to work in restaurants to be behind the kitchen to be behind the line um, to 
expose their culture, expose a bad word, to showcase their culture, to, because um, again, for me anyway, food is culture. You can blindfold me, put me anywhere in the world and put a plate of food in front of me and I can tell you where that's from. High level, high level. Right? So, but we can all sort of do that because we remember the food from our pastime, from our family and what has really like been passed on. And in this world that we live in today, uh, again, particularly in America, how do we save that? I really don't know. And that is my biggest challenge and sort of um, existential question that I have with my partners is we want to grow. We have great ideas. Everything is aligned. The deal is great. The food is great. The investment is great. Where are the people? So that that is my biggest challenge. Yeah, I think in today's day and age, like looking for staff that are motivated yep. during, during everything that's going on in our climate right now. Yep. So, um, I definitely feel like I can relate that when it comes to school and looking for people that are motivated to do certain projects and stuff like that. Um, do you feel like working in the sort of entrepreneurial changing business that makes you need to be adaptable 24-7? I want to say yes, but again, I'm so biased because this is really the only business that I've ever worked in. Um, was always hospitality. No, no, I'm lying. When I was in high school, I worked at a, um, you know, like Party City? Yeah. I worked at Party City for know, maybe six months or a year when I was a senior in high school. Um, it was fun. It was fun. But yeah, this business really, you know, again, I'm, I'm biased, but really any business where any young person really gets to get exposed to a lot of facets of a business. Again, you, and I'm fascinated by businesses that um, people use, like cobblers, shoe cobblers. Like, I'm fascinated. I, I wish if I could reincarnate myself, I would go back. I'd want to be a cobbler. Just to like work with my hands and just like my expertise is this. No one can ever take that away from me. Anyway, um, so being in a small business where you get to sort of listen to the owner, inter interact with the customers and really see what they're asking for and how the business can react to that. You know, there's a lot of pros and cons to it, but yeah. What was your what was your vision? Like, what did you want to? What did you want the vibe to be like? The culture? How did you want customers yeah. to come in? And yeah. Um, so my third business partner, which I haven't talked about, his name is John. He started as an hourly employee for me 15 years ago, and he, and he made partner about eight years later. He was actually a government guy. I uh, studied government and all that, but for some reason he wanted to get into food. So he applied and got him a minimum wage job. He just was so fascinated by the business. Um, and he worked his butt off for eight years, became partner. And he's actually my third partner in my Saloniki group. So it's me and my chef and John. And John actually became recently the COO of my whole company. Um, and this concept started when John came to Greece with me for the first time. So he was working for me and then we became buddies. Um, and I go to Greece all the time because, you know, family and friends. And then we go to Greece and we land and I take him to a traditional gyro shop right outside the airport. Just because we were flying, we're hungry. And, I was, and he eats, like, takes a bite. And he's like, oh my God, this food's amazing. Why don't we have this in America? And I was like, well, I had never thought about it because for me it's, well, this is what I eat all the time anyway. So I didn't really think about it. It was lacking. So he came up with the idea. And the idea really was to bring Greek food to Americans. But we didn't, and we wanted to be casual, sort of uh, street, street style food. Um, but we also wanted to be very uh, forward and, and with our approach, with our culinary approach, with our ingredients as well. And so again, uh, sorry for the long storytelling, but in 2000, uh, as we were opening up here, 2014, 2015, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a city in Greece, ironically where I'm from, called Thessaloniki. That's where the name Saloniki comes from. It's a large city, it's about one and a half million population. Very academically driven city. Um, and the New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article about food in Thessaloniki being the best in the world. And what I appreciate about the article is actually talking about how it became one of the best food cities in the world. And it was all a uh, deviation 
from the economic crisis. So we had our economic crisis here, 07, 08, and then Europe experienced it around 2010, 11. So what happened there is, imagine being a young college kid who's 21, 22, 23, you graduate college and there's no work. There's no work, right? So, okay, so you just went to school, literally there's no work. You can't even go work at a sandwich shop. There's no work. So, what happened was, and again, very much immigrant mentality here. Your dad has a pizza shop, or whatever. In Greece, they're gyro shops. Your dad has a gyro shop, but you went to school to become an engineer, and there's no engineering jobs. Like, what do you do? You twiddle your thumbs and you go spray paint, because that's what happened, right? The sort of like anarchism, hooligan sort of kind of thing, right? And you'll see it in Madrid, you'll see it in actually Barcelona, you'll see it in Athens, at the Saudi these European cities where they had to go through this economic crisis, but you have these young kids who are full of energy and have no place to displace that energy but graffiti, for instance. And so what they did in Greece, because food, as, as most, most cultures in the world, food is such a big part of who people are, these young kids said, shit, I have an engineering degree or whatever degree, law degree, doctor degree, and I can't go to work. So I'm going to go work at my dad's gyro shop. But because these kids were more forward thinking, obviously access to the internet, access to social media, whatever, they started to redefine food. Um, we sort of take it here for granted. So I can go open up a Mexican restaurant here without even going to Mexico, right? You just open up your Instagram and I don't know, look at a couple of blogs and YouTubes, you can open up a Mexican restaurant. So um, these kids actually did the same thing with Greek food. They're like, you know what? Well, I'm smart, went to school, I have access to all these resources. Let me take Greek food and move it forward. And so when we came back from our culinary trip, so my partner John said, I love this food, why don't we have it here in America? So he comes up with the idea and uh, pitches it to my culinary partner and I. I was like, yep, I love it, great, let's go to Greece and go discover what we want to do. So I went to Greece, we had an idea of what we wanted to do, but then after we came back two weeks later, it was a whole other idea. So what we wanted to do is take traditional food and ingredients and really be a little bit more forward and modern with it use ingredients that are sustainable as much as possible there you know we don't have freezers you know we don't freeze anything french fries are actually the only thing uh that is you know processed uh because we try to make our own fries and it's shake shack did as well they tried doing their own fries and then they're like no nope, we like the factory made ones but whatever um so that's that's really where the idea kind of came from was respect to uh to culture and to food and, and show to Americans what free culture can be like. I have to be honest, I've never tried my food before, but I have a friend who mm -hmm. is from Greece and she goes there all the time on vacation and like, um, actually yes I have tried something. I worked with um, an old man who was from Greece mm -hmm. and he gave me these cookies. I don't know the name What do they look though. or taste like? Um, they have like nuts on them. They're like small. They're like kind of white. Is there a lot of Is okay. Um, if you say the name, I could probably like tell you. Yeah, that's it. But Kuluri is a uh, kurabie. No. So the so the white there's a holiday cookie. It's a shortbread cookie, and they put um, uh, uh, what's that sugar called? Confectionery sugar and nuts on top. Um, but there's what's interesting about Greece is it's literally on the divide of Middle East and Europe, right? It's like it's like right there. Um, so a lot of our influences, our culinary influences, believe it or not, and particularly for Saloniki, they come from the eastern part of the world. Uh, so a lot of nuts and spices. Whereas if you go, we just went to Italy for two weeks with my partner because we're opening an Italian restaurant, so we're gonna go see Italian food. And but you go to Italy, you don't have any of these spices that or the nuts that we use. And again, geographically, it's really amazing to see. It's just sort of resourcefulness. Um, so I don't know the name of that. One. It sounded like what you said at the beginning. With this. Okay, so the cake. Yeah. 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 I just think it's so cool you get to travel in the world. Too. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. It's like yeah. an upscale version of what we do. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. I wish I could do that to be honest. Sometimes, though, we say, I wish I could open the gym. Because it sounds fun, and sometimes we have, some, some, sometimes our investors want to join us in these culinary tours, and we're like, yeah, yeah, come along. Sometimes our staff, and sometimes we do bring our staff. It is fun, but it's like it's a lot of work on your body because yeah. you're just constantly eating. So there's um, 
we went to New York one time. No, we were in Athens. And we did 43 restaurants in 24 hours. Oh my goodness, So like, obviously we're not having meals at all of them, but maybe we'll go for like an Amaro somewhere because they're very well known for their Amaros. Then we'll go have a cookie somewhere and then a croissant and then boom, 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 boom. Anyway, and then you come home and we walk and we'll do probably like 15 miles a day walking. But you come home and you're like, my God. <laughs> like, finish me off. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually how what I feel like today, right? I went for 72 hours eating. I'm back today and I'm like, oh I've got to get back on a fast or something. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. it's um, it's exciting. But I think for me, the interesting part is the culture. And again, even, even you know, Nashville or, I don't know, uh, Miami, right? Um, Miami for me was never a fun city. It was just like too much party and too fake. Yeah. My Miami now has some really great food, right? Because they know all these people are going there. So, um, yeah, I do travel for food and my friends and, you know, do that as well. Yeah. So it is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I know you're talking about, like, investors and stuff. Do you know how you, like, find investors? Like, how do you go about, like, finding the right people and if they're good for the company? And yeah. So we do, um, you know, we're obviously not publicly traded. Yes. Um... So our investors are what we call friends and family. None of them are real family, none of them are real friends. Uh, they're investors, but we treat them like friends and family. Um, we're very uh, particular about bringing on investors. Um, you know, they don't have any operational say, kind of like a public company. You know, I own you know, Amazon stock, it doesn't mean I call them up and say, hey, you know. Yeah. Um, so we sort of operate in the same way. Because it's a very finicky business, we don't want, and it's a very high, high failure rate. Restaurants are one of the worst uh, businesses to get into. Um, and so there's so many moving pieces. I don't want someone to say, hey, you know what, I, I, I love your restaurant, like an investor, I love your restaurant, but if you put this hits, you're going to do like, yeah. no, no. Take care, guys. Good to see you. You got it. Absolutely. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so um, we pick our investors in the same manner that we pick our kind of landlords. Uh, the same with our staff, the same with our vendors. People have to have the same culture and ethics that we do. Um, we're very sort of cool, calm, and collected. Um, you know, we don't yell. We don't swear. So... You know, we've heard horror stories about investors going into a restaurant and thinking like they own the place. It's like, yeah. nope, all my investors pay full price. They may call me for a VIP reservation because we're fully booked. I'm happy to take care of that. Yeah. Um, and they really become advocates of our, of our brand and the community. And typically these investors are people who are very well-to-do. Most, if not all of them, are Bostonians, similar to me, who want to have a great place in their neighborhood or, you know, tell people, oh, yeah, I'm an, I'm an investor at that restaurant or something along those lines. So, um, so that's sort of like one part of, you know, kind of the qualitative part about investors. And then obviously there's the quantitative part where the business model has to make sense and we work really hard to ensure that our investors are happy with what we're doing. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it's this sort of like, you know, fun balance, but um, but we like it the most because they're really the megaphone for our brand in a lot of places, yeah. Um, what is like, I guess like two more questions. Yeah. What is like some advice you could give to like Suffolk students, mm -hmm. um, being an entrepreneur, being like a business, coming from business school, like what is something you wanna yeah. advise them? I think the first thing is always minimize that risk gap that I talked about earlier. Whatever you want to do, if you want to open up a print shop or you want to go become an engineer or you want to become an architect or whatever it is, um, minimize that risk gap. And how do you do that? Well, of course, one is financially and one of the most important ways is financially, but also um, uh, experience-wise. If you want to be an architect, and again, I don't know anything about architecture. But if you want to be an architect, you don't have to go open up your own firm when you graduate you know, school, like day one. Go work for someone for 10 years. Go become an expert at it. Not only do you become an expert, they, they pay you to become an expert. And then you realize from there, okay, is this really what I want to do 
And then again, if it's a small enough studio, are you interacting, are you learning all the different facets of the business? And then that way you're ready to, to open up your own place. You're gonna be so well versed. So that to me is always the number one thing, is minimize that risk gap again. It's financial, it's experience, it's work experience. I have, I couldn't tell you how many people approach me, not on a daily basis, but at least on a weekly basis and say, I want to open a restaurant, what do you think? Have you worked, I've never worked in a restaurant, but I want, no, I really, it's like, it's yeah. like me saying I want to go become a dentist. Did you go to medical school? No, I didn't. Why do you want to go become a dentist? Because yeah. you like teeth? I don't know. Um, so that's the, the first thing. And number two is, there's no rush to becoming an entrepreneur. You can open a place any day and 99.99% chance that you're going to close your place. So have you thought about closing? What does that unraveling look like? Where are you? What does it feel like? What does it look like? Because it's something that we have to ask ourselves. Like Saloniki is not going to be around forever. Hopefully it's around after I die. But I don't know. It's a business. Every business opens and closes. So how does that closing of the business look like? What happens to my staff? What happens to the guests that come in? What happens to the community? Uh, you know, all of those things. When you're when you're opening, you get so excited about, I'm going to have this sandwich on the menu. People are going to love it. This is the decor. All these things. And then you open, and now it's you have a breathing baby, right? And you have to feed it every day. I don't have any children, so I'm just seeing from my friends. <laughs> you have to care for Like, once you have a baby, you can never not have a child, well, yeah. unless something tragic happens in your life. But this is now your purpose. So you can never say, I'm going to go to Cancun for a week and, and party. Yeah. No, you have a baby. And so it's the same with a business. You as Once you make that commitment to open... You have to be ready. And so one of the things that you said earlier, like you're not ready to become an entrepreneur. You may not want to yeah. become an entrepreneur. And that's great. And it's really, really important to think about that because, again, the luxuries of working for someone you don't have as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Same could be said on the other side. There are things as an entrepreneur that you'll never have. And it's always a risk return. It's always a risk return. So I can f- jump on a plane and fly to Beirut in 72 hours I worked at my corporate job. I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, but also on the flip side is that I went to Beirut where my business is busy. Did I have to go to one of the businesses because someone didn't show up or someone said something wrong to a customer? Sure. Right. So it's a sort of like balance. You can always quit your day job if you don't like it and get another job. Yeah. With a business, you can't just close it and say, you know what? I don't like freaking more. I want to do Spanish here. So... Um, those two things is minimize that risk gap as much as possible and then you know you got to think about the beginning and the end of your business and what does that look like you know it's scary uh, you know I've never closed the business um, and I'm fucking scared because it's going to close for one or two reasons one is or three one is I may never see it because I may die hopefully um, two is I may get bought and that's always a really good exit for an entrepreneur or three, and sadly, maybe this location didn't work, and we have to close it. Yeah. And that is just gut wrenching. Like, I can't tell you. I can't. And the only reason I know is because I've had several businesses in the past open, hugely successful, and then after a few years, it just boom. Right? Yeah. As with anything, there's like Snapchat was a cool app. Now it's not. I don't know. You guys will tell me. But <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean. There, there, there's a, there's a new kid on the block. So what do you do if you're, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Snapchat? Like, ah, you close it down, you're struggling. To, like, struggling. adapt to it, like, adapt to the environment around you. Like, I, I feel like if, if this was, like, going downhill, like, would you want to, like, adapt and, like, change it up or, like, add more stuff, add, like, a different experience? Like, all, all of those questions is what yeah. we ask. All of those questions. Yeah. And then... And then now we have to answer those questions, right? Yeah. And the confinement of who we are. So, okay, so if this isn't working, okay, change, add some things. Okay, we try that. How long do you, you know, measure that for? Is it for a week, for a month, for a year? If that still isn't working, then what do you do next? When do you know to just pull out and just say, fuck it, close the doors. This isn't working. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, people love hearing the success stories of entrepreneurs. But it's probably a million to one. You know, like there's a podcast, uh, How I Built This. Do you guys I listen to I think I've heard that actually, yeah. Um, 
And it's a great podcast about entrepreneurs and how they built their company. But you don't hear. I was just recently listening to the, you know, Tate's cookies? Yeah. The green, yeah, amazing cookies. And so the woman sold it for 100 million. Oh, wow. Right? With 100, meet, uh, 100 million, your grandchildren's children will never have to work, right? Like, never mind, you don't have to, like, your whole yeah. generational family yeah. will never have to work. But what did she do to get there? You know, she was 60 years old. She's been baking cookies for 40 years. I, I can bet you that you can't find anyone who's been baking cookies for 40 years. People may open for a year, two years, the place is hot, and then things die, and they're like, oh, well, how do we adapt? And they'll just sort of close or walk away. Um, so people forget that you have to enjoy the process. You have to, and that's, and again, I think we live in a world where like, I don't know, instant gratification on social media, you know, billionaires and fast cars and fast money and all this other stuff, but the journey is glorious. Yeah. That's what, and no one will ever take that away from me. I don't want anyone to give me a hundred million dollars today. I don't. Like, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't change my life. What am I going to go do? Buy a yacht? Yeah, I was going to say, like, what are you going to do after that? You have no purpose for anything. Okay, last thing I'll say about my trip to <laughs> Lebanon. So again, it's a country where it's 50 years back. And um, I went to go visit my buddy and his family. And I know what that life is like because growing up in Greece, it's a very laid back, casual. There's no hustle and bustle. There's no suits. Nobody's wearing suits. Nobody is going to an office. You know, work is like good luck if you get it. They're typically government jobs. But and what do they do all day? They sit on the sidewalk smoking cigarettes for 10 hours at a time, right? And my buddy's like, oh, look at this. Isn't this the life? Isn't this like you just really get to take in every breath of air? Sure. Sure, you're not running from meeting to meeting and from thing to do, like thing to do. But what value have you added to your life and to your journey, in your own mind and to the community? And so um, I don't know how we got started on the story, but um, for me, I don't. Even if someone came in and said, "Eric, here's a hundred million dollars. Give me all your restaurants." Boom, great. I'm gonna go open up more tomorrow. Like I, I you know, and I'm not gonna go buy a yacht. So I think. You know, that's the beauty of entrepreneurs. And sometimes you see this with, uh, you know, tech people, you know, like, I don't know, Elon, who's in the news every day. You know, he's buying new companies. Like, he could just sit and own the world, pretty much. But um, So that's a glorious journey to be an entrepreneur. And failing is part of the fucking pro- uh, process. And, and people have to appreciate the failure. Uh, and when, I, when my businesses fail, and they have... And I've had to go in there and grind it out and ask those questions and turn them around. And that turning around is fucking amazing. And the reason my business has failed is because I sat my laurels up here. And then, you know, then they failed. Then I had to go and ask myself those questions. Because when you're up here, you don't know, you just book trips and you just go on a trip. You're enjoying life. You're not sharpening your tool because your tool is already sharp. But that knife is going to dull. It's when it's sharpen that knife that you really appreciate it. I guess the last thing is like, what do you recommend to eat here? <laughs> um, it depends. So, um, definitely a sandwich. I fucking love the sandwiches. Or souvlaki meal. Okay. Um, have you guys eaten here yet? Do you, I guys, never eaten. Do you guys want lunch? Um, we have I've, a budget that we can use to. Yeah. To what? I mean, you have a budget is Oh, yeah, because, I mean, yeah, so we, we usually get a budget from our marketing agency for, yeah. like, how much we No, 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 but you guys want lunch today? I'll, I'll take yeah, care of it. Yeah, yeah okay, sure. great. Thank you. So after we wrap up, I'm going to jet, but I'll, um, you guys can order what you want. I'll order a couple of things that you have to uh, specifically try. Um, so the meal, um, I always get the souvlaki, the double souvlaki meal. So it comes with rice or french fries, a little side salad, a pita. Pitas are actually made uh, from hand in Greece. And we bring those over. Yeah, I just don't like American wheat or American flour. Uh, Super high gluten, uh, GMOs, processed. Yep. Um, A lot of my friends who are gluten free, they can go in Europe and eat as much gluten as they want. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's amazing. And in Europe, no one's fat. Like here, like everyone. Well, yeah, because we're eating such highly processed food. Like. Um, so, double classic souvlaki meal is my favorite. Um, then I always get sort of like my, 
mustache, which is the crispy feta puffs. So it's almost like a fried dough, but it's savory with feta cheese inside. Oh, wow. uh, and then we make a uh, hot honey. So we do chili peppers in, a, in honey. So you get a honey that's really spicy. Yeah. And then the spanakopita, which is a very traditional Greek food. It's spinach and cheese in a uh, pita. Um, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so those are sort of my, my go-to, but the sandwich here. I mean, particularly if you're like on the go. Oh, you're yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Thank you for meeting with us. Awesome. This is so sure. interesting and like a sure. lot of information and like Great. really good information too and advice and everything. Awesome. So. Awesome. Where, where are you guys in school right now? Like year-wise, yeah. uh, juniors. Awesome. Cool. I'll be graduating in the fall. Yeah. I'm going to graduate in the spring. Nice. What do you, and you guys are in marketing? Yes. Yeah, management and marketing. Got it. I'm marketing. Oh, cool. And what's after? You go first. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm having an internship over the summer to work at a bank, so I'm going to be doing more corporate marketing and finance to kind of get into that. Got it. A lot of my other internships have been more small businesses, so I wanted to try a different Absolutely. perspective. Absolutely. Um, after that, I'm probably going to try to get my MBA as well. Awesome. And then I want to go into uh, cosmetics and work. Cosmetics? Yeah. Cool. Working, uh, Awesome. That's cool. I didn't know about the cosmetics. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really want to go into healthcare, do like mm -hmm. healthcare administration stuff. Mm -hmm. So I want to try and get my MBA. I know you can get it at Suffolk because we have like this new like four plus one program. So I'm gonna try and get a marketing one, and then I either want to go to Northeastern or BU to get like a public health yeah. MBA one. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also want to do something related to like music and art too because that's a really big part of my life. So. Yeah. Yep. Try to figure that out. Yep. Either it's like a passion or a part of like my mm -hmm. management marketing skills, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll figure it awesome. out. Awesome. Yeah, art is really interesting, particularly in this digital age. I think I appreciate it a lot more. I mean, not necessarily sort of NFTs, but uh, digital, anything digital, I, I'm really kind of drawn to. I think it's, it's really, I mean, because we're all, we're here all the time, right? Yeah. And um, so I, I find that really fascinating. One other thing you brought up that I want to mention as well, I always talk about you know, for entrepreneurs, really getting exposed to small businesses because you get every facet. What I forgot to mention is I worked uh, in my corporate careers, it was at Harvard and Ropes and Gray, two large, humongous institutions. And what I learned there was actually uh, invaluable as well, which is for institutions to be around for so long, they've had to do things right, and you learn at how methodical they are when they make decisions. So now for my company, it was great in the beginning for me to be very nimble and entrepreneurial, but now where we have 400 staff, my dis I have to think like Harvard or Robeson Gray, like my decisions aren't, they can't be just in the moment. I have to think methodically. And I always kind of refer back, I was like, when I was working corporate, how would my boss or how would the CEO have made this decision? So actually, yeah, so getting big, big world ex or big company experience is also also, so, so important. Yeah. So important. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Great. Yeah, it was great. So great meeting you. Same here, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming down. I want to travel like you and eat food. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our third episode of Beantown Bites. If you're looking for a quick bite on a budget, an aesthetic casual spot to hang with friends, a fine dining night for a date, or food trucks, then don't miss out on our future Beantown Bites episodes. For our next episode, we're going to be trying Beantown Pub. And we'll be stopping for dessert at Insomnia Cookies.